Cause we got the alternative energy Molecular free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network Hello and welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show I'm Jessie Boylan This week's episode has been produced from central Victoria Where I live on unceded Jajawarong country and it's broadcast from the studios of 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. It's also broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. I haven't done a show for a few years, so I'm excited to be back as an honorary member of the team, but I also apologise for being a bit of a rookie again. Today's focus is on the role of various art and media practices on engaging with nuclear legacies and nuclear stories a particular passion of mine. First, we'll hear from Marilyn Fairsky, a Sydney-based artist, about her new film, Birds, a tale about radioactive pigeons, two pairs of twins, and a massacre that brings chaos to a sleepy seaside village, a story which is based on true events related to the Sellafield nuclear power plant in the UK. We also hear from Gordon Murray, Senior Lecturer in Drama, Community Theatre and Media at the University of Winchester in the UK, about his project, The Fallout Project, a collaboration with British nuclear veterans using verbatim theatre as a campaigning tool in relation to British nuclear testing and their descendants. Sellafield is a former nuclear power plant close to Seascale on the coast of Cumbria, England. The plant is in the process of being decommissioned, but still reprocesses nuclear fuel and stores nuclear waste dating back to the 1950s. Sellafield is Europe's largest nuclear site and covers an area of approximately two square miles and divided by the River Calder. Today it has over 200 nuclear facilities, some 60% of the UK's total civil nuclear liabilities. It also employs a workforce of over 10,000 people. According to the Cumbrians opposed to a radioactive environment, the site was acquired by government as a munitions factory during World War II and transferred to the Ministry of Supply in 1945 for use in the UK's weapons program. Ownership of the site passed to the newly formed United Kingdom Atomic Energy Authority in 1954. The two basic windscale pile reactors produce plutonium for the UK's nuclear weapons program and apparently uranium from Australia was processed there and then used in the weapons tested at Maralinga, Emufield and Montebello in South and Western Australia. The plant has had numerous closures and accidents, the first when Pile 1 caught fire in 1957. This is known as the windscale fire, forcing the permanent closure of both piles which are still being decommissioned today. Marilyn Fairsky is a visual artist living in Sydney whose recent video and photographic work explores the effects of powerful events of real life on humans and the environment. Current projects that explore the relationship between technology, atomic landscapes and community have taken her on location to the Polygon in Kazakhstan, to Sellafield, Chernobyl and other key nuclear sites. This has resulted in an art film, video installations and photographic series that have been exhibited in Australia and internationally. I asked her to tell us the story behind her film, Birds, and how it connects to the ongoing violence of nuclear legacies all over the world. And this is where we begin. 
two twins, twins, identical twins, lived in house. They lived there for, for all of their lives and they're inseparable. They'd never sort of had partners or um, separated in any way at all. And so they, they loved animals. They loved animals and they loved singing, um, but they particularly loved birds and of the birds they loved, Oh, they love cockatiels and various other birds, but they're very fond of pigeons. And so eventually um, their place became a sort of unofficial pigeon sanctuary. And there were thousands of birds coming every day and they'd look after the sick ones and feed them and all of that. It started off with just a few. They'd arrive in the morning and settle on the roof of the house or around the garden. We'd put food out for them. Such pretty things and smart. They're directly descended from dinosaurs. They got to know us. We really looked after them. And after a while, the flock became quite big. That's when the trouble started. Seascow used to be um, a, um, like a holiday, a holiday town. But until there were so many accidents at the plant and discharges of pollute of contaminated water into the Irish Sea that eventually um, people stopped going there. So it was sort of pretty run down in a way. And but the nonetheless there was still this we're talking here around the late nineteen nineties, there were still quite a few guest houses, you know, catering to people coming in to have holidays at the golf course that basically was sandwiched in between the village and the nuclear plant and so there was a guest house next door to the pink house and the owners complained about all the bird um, poo and the smell and the noise of the birds because by now there were thousands of birds coming every day so the council got involved mm. and it came out as the council sort of got involved in just trying to manage the problem of all these huge number of birds now coming to this tiny backyard that the birds were flying out back to the plant every night and someone who worked at the plant jokingly said, oh, they're probably contaminated because they're in on the pond. The open storage ponds are in old buildings. There were holes in the roof. There are even some ponds in the open air. They took samples. The contamination on the wings and feathers and in the flesh was really high. And so uh, I think it was Greenpeace organised tests. And this, we're talking 1999 here. And um, yes, the birds were hugely contaminated, you know, in, and of course around there people ate pigeons. Wow. You know, it's quite a common thing, pigeon yeah. pie, roast pigeon. Yeah. It's also, it was a depressed area economically because, I mean, one of the terrible things about that area was that the government discouraged other forms of employment to encourage people to work at the plant and to support... In a way, it creates a type of dependency. The plant becomes necessary to keep the local economy afloat. People become more inclined to accommodate the plant. And, of course, 
with all the incidents, the loss of tourism and all of that, the plant was even more necessary. But so um, when the pigeons were found to be contaminated, the council got a lot more involved and they initiated a cull, which, of course, the twins were very upset with but about. But they culled the pigeons and then, of course, they had to, what do you do with radioactive pigeons? You can't put them in the garbage bins, you know, or just dump them in the in the garbage dump. So I had to put them in lead canisters and take them up the road to Drig, which was a low level nuclear waste depository, right on the right on the beach, just a sort of couple of mile, miles up the road. But then of course they tested the seagulls. And they found there were starlings and all sorts of birds, other birds going into the plant, migratory birds, swallows. Mm. And the seagulls were contaminated. They had a bit, another big cull there. But, of course, the dump was full. And so they couldn't take any more there. So they got a giant refrigerator at the plant, you know, like those big ones on the back of Woolies trucks. And soon that was full with all the carcasses which is probably still there in the plant. But what it meant was there were hardly any birds, you know, in the area. So then life resumes, you know, normalcy and things just chug along a bit. But then in 2011, you know, quite some time afterwards, um, something very strange happened. And I'd seen this in the media, but it wasn't until Martin reminded me that I pinned it together, this taxi driver, um, for a whole bunch of reasons, just lost the plot and he went around um, on a rampage through the village, through adjacent villages. He was a former worker at Sellafield mm. but who'd been sacked for stealing. Um, he, he was also a twin. The first person he shot was his twin brother who he had a big grievance against to do with money and also his brother was more successful. Then went and shot another 10 villagers and then the last person he shot was one of the twins from the Pigeon Sanctuary. Mm. And when Martin sort of told me the story, I just... I saw that in some ways in that story, that story that started for me with the pink cup, in some ways it really encapsulated just this, the slow violence that I associate with Mm. the nuclear Mm. and that it permeates, it permeated, not just from Sellafield, but somehow you could see as a, almost in a sort of symbolic way, the way in which it permeated the whole environment, not just the physical environment, but also just the environment that people socially occupied. People walk their dogs on the sand, but no one swims in the sea. I saw the birds as, in a way, um, you know, that, I mean, if you if you were really sort of wanting to look for the symbolism, you could say that um, the taxi driver, 
Derek Bird, whose name was Derek Bird, by the way. Wow. Yes. That yeah. Derek Bird, in a way, evoked um, J. Robert Oppenheimer's Destroyer of Worlds. Mm. Um, the twins were, you know, sort of Francis of Assisi mm-hmm. characters, in a way, you know, looking after the natural world with a love for all creatures. Um, whatever you know whatever their form and that the birds were in a sense um they they were like voices from the future and that and the way in which you know i i saw the birds just as keeping on coming back mm. indestructible in a way i mean birds reproduce really rapidly mm. but they just became um yeah they were like omens for me yeah. And I think about the nuclear thing, and I think I'd made so many almost quite literal nuclear works, and I was just very interested mm. in working with the material in a very different way. All of these alarms is the same. If you're inside a building designated as a site emergency assembly point, remain in the building, elect a site emergency respirator. There's so many layers yeah. that connected for me on so many levels of my interests. And I did see it as a way of working with the material in in a way that would allow me to move away from the literal because the events themselves, like the recent, I mean, in summary, it's a work about the radioactive pigeons, Mm. two sets of twins and a massacre. Now, that's sort of quite sensationalist. And so how do you deal with that in a way that, draws out the full power of it without it simply appearing sensationalist. Mm. And so that was the challenge and the interest in working with the story for me. You're listening to The Radioactive Show on 3CR Melbourne and broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. We've been hearing from Marilyn Fairsky, a Sydney-based artist, about her 2020 film Birds, which is an artist film that employs an aesthetic approach that emphasises the act of creation and construction over a passive recording and reconstruction of the world. Birds humanises the connection between the nuclear and the everyday at a time of great environmental threat and nuclear uncertainty. The film's soundtrack was created by musician Meg Travers on a 21st century version of the Trautonium. Hopefully, in post-corona times, you will be able to see birds at a film festival near you. You can find out more about Marilyn's work via www.fairsky.com. That's F-A-I-R-S-K-Y-E dot com. We're now going to hear from Gordon Murray, who is a senior lecturer in the Department of Performing Arts at the University of Winchester in the UK. We talked to Gordon about his work, The Fallout Project, which are audio documentary drama poems which create portraits of nuclear children. The pieces explore the effects on individuals who feel themselves to be at the mercy of chromosomal aberrations caused by events on the other side of the world a generation earlier, and for whom the science that may shine a light on their condition is vague, unproven and unfathomable.
Between the spotlight and the fade to black, Sharon's dad replays his part. Remembers, reprises, relives and reacts. The end returns him to the start. He served at Christmas Island and Maranuka. When the bomb went off, you could see your skin and that through your hands. And, and he really lived his entire experiences weeks before he died. Michael Watson still stands centre stage in that theatre of operations with a conscripted chorus that's been engaged to raise their hands in blind ovation. At one of these events, the, new, uh, the Nuclear Test Veterans Conference events, I became aware that a new group was forming, which was the Descendants. Mm. And I had gone to one of the Descendants meeting and heard their stories. And the big problem I always had with the verbatim is that lots of people tell you a story of going off in a ship and the ship gets this and this and this. But they're the stories that anybody who's had an adventure tells. They're not necessarily nuclear stories. The nuclear story doesn't, doesn't start until the end, if you know what I mean. But yeah. somewhere for these people who are the descendants of the veterans, mm. everything they said was part of the nuclear story. Every mm. concern they had, every fight with the welfare office, every ill health they had, the birth of their children, they were all somehow part mm. of the nuclear story. And so it was sort of exciting in a different way. And that's where mm. this sort of particular project, the Fallout Project came from. So this is a, the Fallout Project is a kind of extension of the, the half-a-life, but it's actually with the children and you call them nuclear children. You know, the kind of where you say that there's, like you just said, the story, the nuclear story is there before they're born. And so it's already part of their life i mean it's part of their chromosomes it's part of their dna you know or it's part of their, their yeah book. and that, that phrase was I, I stole it actually from one of the descendants who called us she said it she said this thing at some point i was offering her some sympathy about her health condition and she said it's the curse of being a nuclear child mm. and it was and so it was such a dramatic thing to describe mm. yourself as uh, mm. um and, you know, you, th this sort of slightly biblical notion of uh, something passed on from father to children, you know, that, 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 and the idea that if you call yourself a nuclear child, at one, one level it's somehow you're born out of the nuclear, but mm. also you yourself are nuclear, you mm. know, and it's, it's, um, it's mm. the sort of stuff that the Marvel comics will make a, a film franchise about, mm. this this sort of strange mystical science fiction mm. power but actually in this person it was embodied in a very sad pedestrian reality of somebody whose body mm. was disintegrating a lot of digestive issues and problems um which i've had for many years it's only just now they're starting to get to the bottom of it and find out the problems i think there's something possibly to do with the tests. It's like a countdown. <laughs> it's like a bomb sort of thing with a countdown and it's just waiting for when the next thing's going to happen. She calls herself a nuclear child. The issue of a nuclear curse that the generations reconcile in the family drama they rehearse. When I had the miscarriages and that 
and I've had 14. Well, what ill wind blows your mind away? You know, part of the condition, the condition that these people all share is their concern about their body or the things that are happening in the body aren't validated particularly by science. They sort of live in this strange realm where they feel like something's wrong. Where, you know, I borrow from mm. the anthropologist mm. uh, Joseph Maskell this concept of the nuclear uncanny, mm. this world where something is wrong. They, they live in a body which is familiar to them and yet it's strange to them. Mm. And so one example of that would be this condition, Durkham's disease, uh, the real name, which is adiposis dolorosa, which is best translated as a grieving beneath the skin or a sadness beneath the skin. It causes painful lipomas. Um, they have their own nerve supply. Very, very painful. There's no cure for it. Everything hurts. Just You just feel like your whole body's in pain much as fatty swelling and pain are the most prominent features of the disease, I propose for it the name adiposis dolorosa. Even a doctor inclined to care may not be quick to diagnose a condition of which they are unaware, like adiposis dolorosa. When Francis Durkham named the condition the hidden pain with no relief, he marked it with the recognition of a body's pain infused with grief. Dolorosa, infused with grieving. Adiposis, beneath the skin. Inside sorrow, weeping, cleaving. Durkham's disease, pain within. There's five, six of us in 300 that have got Durkham's disease. How on earth? If it's so rare, how, how can we all have it? In a way, it's a, a physical manifestation of what these people feel all the time, which is this strange feeling that something is wrong, even the ones that don't suffer particularly from Durkham's disease. Mm. Although Durkham's disease has a disproportionately high number of people in the descendants community have it. Uh, yeah. It's very rare, but not in the descendants community. What, what they all share is this uncanny feeling that something is not quite right. Yeah. And it's manifesting. The nuclear uncanny is a very kind of uh, apt way to explain it, which is that kind of thing which is like it's shared among so many people, yet it can't be proven. You know, there's the same with, you know, the nuclear veterans and how they all had various forms of cancer that were quite linked to, you know, radiation, but yet it's not proven, you know, and they could never really go, yes, that's exactly from there, but look at all of us, we share these similar conditions. Yeah, and I think one of the problems that the nuclear veterans and their descendants, the sort of nuclear community, I mean, we've got to recognise that when I talk about the British nuclear veterans, they're only one small subset of the people who are, you know, they're the people that I've been dealing mm. with, but mm. it's worth recognising that, you know, that they're one small subset of the people who are affected by these tests. Um, but one of the problems that they've had, I think, is their their story is untenable. It, it can't be told because, and to go back to Masco, he uses this lovely word, unthinkable, that the, if, you, if you stand back and look at the tests and the things, 
the it's too great you can't stand back far enough to see all of the things in this story the mathematics don't do justice the number of megatons of an explosion or the amount of sieverts or the uh, amount of gamma or x-rays explosives you can't contain all of that it's too big too sublime to behold and then but if you try to go into the domestic if you try to go inside and begin to look at the chromosomal aberrations within one person's cellular structure it's too small that story it's just mm. not and all of the time there's so much that sort of signal to noise ratio there's so many you know the journalists tend to be in, interested in the sort of shock or the moment when they saw the hand, the skeleton inside their skin or the sort of big stories about that sort of stuff. But actually, either way, you either look at the domestic and the story isn't tellable because it's boring, mundane science and people getting sick and that sort of mm. stuff. Or you try to look at the whole thing and it can't be told because it's mm. too massive, too mm. huge. And so somewhere between them is the story, but it can't really be told. Mm. Certainly not in the forms that I'd been used to. Bells are rung to mark a change, to punctuate a shift in time. When no outward sense of rearrangement exists, we need the bells to chime to remind us that change can occur beyond what the mind and body sense and the imperceptible transfer from the past into the future tense lives somewhere between the physical, the change that's seen through microscope and change that's born of ritual, catalyzed through faith and hope. Probably mine and your notion of a story is one thing leads to another there's an event and that leads to another event and that leads to another event and that leads to another mm. event but it's not really true of i don't know what you'd call the nuclear exposure experience there's a sort of change and it's not really a change it's imperceptible it's it, it is that change a development or is it a decay mm. you know that actually both things are changed but the you know one change leads things mm. through and in that sense and stop me i'm getting too pretentious here for a second the engine of that change is time time usually in stories leads one event to the next mm. and they go through time but um for say the nuclear descendants there's sort of in this uncanny world where time doesn't obey the same mm. um Things. And so in a way, you know, one of the things I felt I was doing in when I was presenting them was this hybrid between painting a portrait. Now, a portrait is something where it's still, it's just an image. It might give you an impression of what has been and what is to come, but in itself, it's just a snapshot, an image. Mm. Or telling a story, which is mm. sort of where I come from, from theatre and that, that's mm. a, that sort of stuff. And so what I sort of found in these hybrid forms was that it was somewhere between the two, you know. Mm. Yeah, I love how you talk about, and, and this is in an essay which I'll, I'll let listeners know about, but in um, you write about trying to make, that you started trying to make theatre and ending, ending up with a form that wasn't quite theatre and that you would, uh, you thought you'd tell stories about people being but ended up with portraits of people becoming I'm interested in what you mean by that and kind of how perhaps these um, stories and these, um, I don't know, the, 
the, the programs, the projects end up being these kind of hybrid forms of, of art meets theatre meets radio meets all of these different things. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I, I'm guilty of just indulging in some wordplay, I suppose. This, this notion, you know, a portrait of somebody becoming is because there's a contradiction, as we said. If it's a portrait, it's how they are, not how they become. Or a story about how they, of somebody being, which again, but well, that is the contradiction that mm. the nuclear children are caught up in. They sort of are in this hybrid between um, two, two worlds. And I suppose about them, for some reason I knew right at the start that whatever the stories were, they had to be joined together by some sort of simple narrative poetry. If he'd never been there, he'd still be here. You know, the chances are he wouldn't have got that cancer. Because I noticed that when some of the veterans pass away, it brings back emotions they deal with their, their health conditions better than they do with losing their father. You're tuned in to The Radioactive Show on 3CR Community Radio and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We've just heard from Gordon Murray in London, England, who's been discussing with us The Fallout Project, a series of radio dramas with British nuclear veterans' descendants. We heard sections from Shelley Grigg and Sharon Harris's stories. You can hear the full pieces via searching for After the Fallout on BBC4. Many thanks to Gordon and Marilyn for sharing their work with us today. And thanks to you for tuning in. I'm Jessie Boylan. Be sure to tune in next week for another edition of The Radioactive Show. Because